exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. The God of the Bible does not measure success the way we tend to. As a pastor, people are always asking me, how is the church doing? And it's such a basic question, and I struggle to answer it. You see, pastors get such a unique perspective into the life of a church that you see all the highs and lows. You're constantly and simultaneously encouraged and discouraged by everything you see. And there's been several times when someone's asked me, how's the church doing? And I've struggled to give an answer. And as I was struggling to give an answer, I often get interrupted with a follow-up question. Well, how are your numbers? And the reason that's often the follow-up question is because we tend to think numbers equal success. How's the church doing? Well, how many people are in attendance on Sunday morning? Well, if numbers equal success, let me tell you a story about one of the most successful worship services in history. In Exodus 32, the Bible records a worship service that shattered all attendance records. In Exodus 32, 2.5 million people gathered around to worship the Lord. And the singing and the shouts of the people were so loud, so passionate, that we're told there was a man miles away up on a mountain... And he heard the singing of the people and he thought, he thought when he heard it at first that it was the cries of war. So he comes down from the mountain to see what was happening. And we're told that when he came down the mountain, he saw that it was the Israelites worshiping Yahweh. But as he came down the mountain, he discovered that they were worshiping a golden calf. The man who came down the mountain in Exodus 32 was the man Moses. And while Moses had been on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people had gotten impatient with God. And so when Moses came down, he discovered that his own brother Aaron had made a golden calf and led the Israelites to worship this idol. In the words of R.C. Sproul, nothing attracts greater crowds than the practice of idolatry. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, Leviticus 9 is on page 103. And as you're turning, let me remind you that it was because of that worship service with the golden calf that the book of Leviticus exists. The Israelites, just like Adam and Eve, had been exiled from God's presence because they had sinned against God. So God commanded Moses to build a tent, and this tent was designed to be like a new garden of Eden, a new place where man could meet with God. And last week, in Leviticus 8, we saw a historic event in Israel's history. Last week, we saw the inauguration of the Levitical priesthood. Those saying 2.5 million Hebrews who had been worshiping the golden calf were now viewing the beginning of something new as they saw the first men ordained to the priesthood. And to witness that would have been bigger than seeing George Washington sworn in as the first president. And this ordination ceremony took seven days to complete. Why seven days? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how many days? Seven days, absolutely. And now God has commanded these priests to undergo this seven-day ceremony so that they could be recreated. So they could be remade into new little atoms who could minister in this new little mini Garden of Eden. And what we'll learn today is that as these priests began their first day on the job, is that success in the Bible is never measured by asking how many. 
Success in the Bible is measured by one and only one question, and that question is, was God glorified? And my prayer this morning is that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that your number one motivation would be to glorify God. Because in Leviticus 8 through 10, we find three requirements of the priesthood. Last week in chapter 8, we found that the priests had to be remade before they could serve. Now today in chapter 9, we'll see that the priests had to make atonement for themselves before they could serve. And in chapter 10, we'll see that the priests had to do exactly what the Lord commanded as they served. So with that being said, let's pray. Dear Almighty God, in your word, as we encounter you in all of your glory, in all of your holiness, would you prepare our hearts? By your spirit, help us to love you for all that you are, even the parts of you that we do not naturally like. Lord, help us to forsake any form of worldly thinking so that we may embrace you for who you actually are. And as I preach, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Look with me to Leviticus 9, verses 1 through 4. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish and offer them before the Lord and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. For the last seven days, God called Aaron to offer a bull and a ram every day. And now on the eighth day, he has to do it one more time. But now in chapter nine, we see something we haven't seen before. For the first time, offerings are going to be offered not for the priests, but for the people. That entire seven-day ceremony was just to get the priests ready to make atonement on behalf of Israel. And finally, here we are. So the Israelites were to start with a sin offering to purify themselves from the pollution of their sin. And then the Israelites were to offer a burnt offering as an act of total surrender before God. Because in the burnt offering, the entire animal was surrendered on the altar and burnt up with fire. And then Israel gets to do something the priests haven't even gotten to do yet. In verse 4, God calls Israel to give a grain offering and a couple peace offerings. The grain offering was an offering of thanksgiving, thanking God for providing for them grain and provision. And then finally, the peace offering. The peace offering was that moment when the worshiper finally was at peace with God and you would even sit and eat a portion of the peace offering in God's presence. And the reason the priests haven't offered any peace offerings yet, but finally here in Leviticus 9, the Israelites get to, is because verse 4 says, this very day, God was going to show up. Can you imagine that? If I announced today that God, the almighty, all-powerful creator of the cosmos, was showing up today in all of his glory. And that's what we're talking about in verse 4. This is a pivotal moment in Israel's history. So verse 6 says this, And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people 
and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Stop there. Back in verse 2, Moses called the bull for the sin offering a bull calf. And now again in verse 8, he straight up calls the bull a calf. Why does he do that? Well, once again, I think Moses is reminding Aaron of the golden calf. In this strange ancient ceremony, God was calling Aaron through Moses to lay up his idol on the altar and then to slaughter it. And so in Leviticus 9, he does this one more time. In verse 8, one more time, Aaron was to offer a perfect calf without blemish to die as a substitute for Aaron's sin, taking the punishment Aaron deserved. And that's why if you read in verse 11, the skin of the bull from Aaron's sin offering is taken outside the camp and burned up. And that's important because remember, if a priest offered a sin for someone else, they don't get to eat the skin. If they offered a sin offering for themselves, or they get to eat, the, if they're offering it for someone else, they get to eat it. If they're offering it for themselves, they don't. Because when you sin, it wouldn't make any sense if you get a free meal out of it. You don't get to reap the benefits of your sin. And so Aaron burns up the skin of the animal outside the camp because he recognized that he too was a sinner that needed his sins covered. You see, every priest who ever served at the tent of meeting, starting with Aaron, every priest still needed to have their own sins covered. Every priest who ever served from the least to the greatest was still a sinner who needed to first have their own sins forgiven before they could represent Israel and make atonement for their sins. And the sacrifices they offered could never fully take away sins, which is why they were offered over and over and over and over again. You see, there's this misconception that in the Old Testament, the Israelites were saved by these sacrifices, but when the New Testament age begins, now we're saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is simply not true. We read earlier in Hebrews 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so you may be wondering, if these offerings can't take away sin, then what on earth are they even here for? And that's a great question. You see, these sacrifices were ultimately meant to point forward to a true and better sacrifice to come. These priests were weak and sinful so that the people would look forward to a true and better high priest to come. One who wouldn't need a sacrifice. One who wouldn't need forgiveness because he knew no sin. And that's why Hebrews 10 tells us that every priest stands daily to offer the same sacrifices repeatedly. The priests were always standing because their job was never done. But when Christ had offered himself as the single sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by his one offering, he has made perfect all who are being sanctified. Because you see, if you've ever sinned, if you've ever rebelled against God's commands, then you cannot save yourself. No matter how many offerings that you would try to offer on your own behalf, no matter how many prayers you pray, no matter how much you try for your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, you cannot save yourself. Your only hope is if you have a perfect sinless priest who can represent you and make atonement on your behalf. And we know that this perfect high priest is Jesus. 
And today, if you confess your sins and trust in the sacrifice of Christ, then you can be made clean, you can be purified, you can be forgiven by His blood. You see, the the believers in Leviticus were saved by looking forward to the coming of the Messiah as much as we look backward to the time when Jesus came. Just as Father Abraham believed God and God counted Abraham as righteous, in the Old Testament, when believers came to the tent and believed in God and believed in his promises and believed in his grace, God counted them as righteous because of the perfect high priest to come. Amen, somebody. But now back to Leviticus 9. From verses 12 through 20, Aaron offers everything exactly as the Lord commands. Everything to a T. So verse 22 continues. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Stop there. After Aaron finished offering everything exactly as the Lord commanded. He lifts his hands towards the people and he blesses them. Jesus actually, right before he ascended to heaven, did the same thing to the apostles. After Jesus had offered himself on the cross and risen from the grave, he lifted his hands and blessed the apostles and then he ascended to heaven. And you may have heard of these kind of blessings. Oftentimes they're called benedictions. And if you weren't raised in a church that did benedictions, a benediction is simply a blessing pronounced in prayer over God's people, announcing God's blessing on them. So Aaron offers this benediction in verse 22. And then in verse 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the piece of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. In verse 23, for the first time ever, Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting. It took nine chapters for us to get inside this tent. But after Moses and Aaron come out of the tent, after they offer once again another benediction, another blessing, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And then fire from God appears and consumes the meat that's on the altar. We don't know exactly what this fire would have looked like. Some scholars say lightning from heaven that just shoots down on the altar. Some say some form of spontaneous combustion where it just appears. But regardless, when the people see it, they fall on their faces in worship and in reverence and they shout. Now, this shouting isn't like a scream of terror or horror. No, this was a celebratory cry. This was a joyous shout. You know, everyone knows about the revivals in the Bible about Jonah and Nineveh, and everyone knows about that revival at Pentecost in the book of Acts, but nobody really talks about the revival in Leviticus 9. In Leviticus 9, all the people from the least to the greatest humbled themselves and threw themselves at the mercy of God, and the glory of God appears to everyone. It's like the doors to the Garden of Eden had been thrown wide open. Finally, God's people would be able to dwell in God's presence. But then... We get to chapter 10. Because not only were the priests required to be remade before they could serve, not only did the priests have to make atonement for themselves before they could serve, but they also had to do exactly what the Lord commanded as they served. 
Look to chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Stop there. In our day, we approach God so casually, so thoughtlessly, we have totally lost what it means to fear God, to understand that our God is good, He is our loving Father, but that doesn't mean He's safe. You see, our God is like the sun. Our God is like the sun in that he is the source of all life and light and goodness, but he's also an all-consuming fire. Working in the tabernacle, in some ways, was closer to working in a nuclear power plant than working in a church. If you work in a nuclear power plant and you do your job right, then you get cheap, clean power for you and for all your neighbors. But if you do your job wrong, you risk killing yourself and everyone around you. And that's what happens in Leviticus chapter 10. If you were reading Leviticus for the very first time, verse 1 should have sent shivers down your spine because at the end of chapter 8, Moses told Aaron and his sons that they were to do as the Lord had commanded so that they would not die. And in chapters 8 and 9, there's one phrase that's repeated over and over again. Ten times in those two chapters, we heard that Moses or Aaron or the people did as the Lord commanded. But now in verse 1, Nadab and Abihu do something which the Lord had not commanded, and it cost them their lives. You know, I've been calling Leviticus a deeply symbolic divine play. But make no mistake, just because there's tons of symbolism doesn't mean that what's happening here isn't real. Just because everything the priest did was deeply symbolic doesn't mean they were not playing with fire. And with Nadab and Abihu forgot that, God killed them. What was the unauthorized fire, the strange fire that they offered? Well, the short answer is we don't know. There are a lot of theories about what it could have been. If you're interested in those theories, come ask me about it. But honestly, I don't think it's worth our time to dive into it this morning on Sunday morning because we just don't know. What we do know from this passage is that what Nadab and Abihu did was not forbidden. What they did simply wasn't commanded by God. You see, God doesn't just care that we worship him. He also cares how we are to worship him. When we come to to God in worship. It's not up to us to decide how we are to worship him. We are called to do exactly as he has commanded us. I don't know who said it first, but it's been said, you can come to God as you are, but you can't God come to God any way you want. So for instance, I know a lot of people get really upset when they find out we believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Like they, they say to me, are you really saying that Buddhists and Muslims and Jewish people and atheists are all going to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? And that's when we, as Christians, need to call courage onto ourselves, stand tall, and with as much compassion as possible, we must respond, yes. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God calls everyone to come as they are, but they must come through his only son. We do not get to set the terms. He does. 
And I know this is so foreign to us because even among those who profess to be Christians, there's this attitude of, I can worship God any way that I want to. I meet tons of people in the Adirondacks who believe in God, who want to worship God. They may pray, they may read the Bible, they may try to be kind to their fellow man, but they ultimately neglect the explicit commands of God to worship Him the way He commands. I meet all, people all the time who swear up and down that they're believers in Jesus. So when I ask them, hey, where do you go to church? They say, oh, well, I do my own thing. I mean, God's everywhere, right? Well, of course, God is everywhere, but God has also commanded believers to not forsake the gathering. We're commanded to honor the Lord every week on the Lord's day with God's people the way he wants to be worshiped because he is the focus of our worship. Now, of course, you may be wondering, why was God so severe with Nadab and Abihu? Death? Really? No warning? No second chances? He just wipes them out? Why? Well, look with me to verse 3 and we'll find out. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The ultimate reason God struck down Nadab and Abihu was not because they used the wrong kind of fire or the wrong kind of incense. Ultimately, Nadab and Abihu died because they did not treat God as holy. And to most of us, this seems utterly outrageous. How could God be so harsh, so unforgiving? And when we ask those questions, we call into question God's goodness and we reveal how highly we think of man and how little we think of God. You may have heard of Richard Hitch Hitchens, who was a famous atheist. And Hitchens would often argue with religious people that you can be an atheist and at the same time be a perfectly moral person. And he would often challenge his opponents in debates to name one moral thing, one moral action that a believer can do that an atheist could not do. And this challenge stumped many pastors, rabbis, Buddhists, and, and they couldn't name anything. Well, there was one pastor online named Mike Winger who did come up with a pretty good answer. And let me, let me read to you what he said. As I thought about it, I sat down and I went, how would I answer that? What would be a moral thing a Christian could do that an atheist couldn't do? And then it hit me. The most important moral thing that anybody can do, loving God. Like, it doesn't occur to the atheist or even many Christians that were debating Christopher Hitchens that loving God, the most important moral imperative of the universe, is something an atheist cannot do. So the atheist is deprived of the highest moral imperative a Christian or a human is made for. End quote. According to God, an action is not sinful because it affects other people. An action is considered sinful because it fails to glorify him. The reason it's sinful to hurt other people is other people are made in God's image. So to hurt or to sin against other people is ultimately to sin against God. You see, often we are so man-centered in our thinking that, that, that we think the only way an action can be wrong is if it hurts somebody else. But according to God, one of the greatest evil man can commit is to fail to give him glory. That we're often so man-centered that we tend to think our sin is really no big deal. But according to God, our sin is such a big deal that the wages of sin is death. According to God, our sin is such a big deal that the only possible solution for sin 
to be forgiven is if one who was innocent dies in our place. We're so man-centered in our thinking that when it comes to this story, we tend to feel sorry for Nadab and Abihu and for Aaron. But look at Aaron's response in, at the end of verse 3. Aaron held his peace. In Aaron's silence, he tells us a lot. In Aaron's silence, he acknowledged that his sons had sinned terribly before God and that their punishment was just. That's a really hard pill to swallow. One of the hardest biblical truths to accept is that God is right in all of his judgments. Back in Genesis 18, Abraham struggled with God's holy judgment because God told Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham approached God and he pleaded with God saying, will you sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? What if there are 50 righteous in the city? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do right? So God tells Abraham, I will not destroy the city if there are 50 righteous people in it. And then, of course, Abraham presses in his his luck and he says, what about 45? And God says, 45 people, I will not destroy the city. What about 40? 40 people, and I will not destroy the city. And on and on it goes, and Abraham keeps negotiating until finally he says, what about 10 good people? And God says, even if there are 10 good people, I will not destroy the city for the sake of the righteous. And we read that God did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, just like he does here with Nadab and Abihu. It's a humbling thing to say to God, You are good, and everything you do is good, even if we don't like it or understand it. And in Aaron's silence, that's what he was saying to the Lord. I realized this week that there was too much good stuff in in chapter 10, so that we're going to have to stop at these three verses in Leviticus uh, 10 to move any further. Otherwise, the sermon would be another 20 minutes long to finish the chapter. But remember that my prayer this morning was that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that your number one motivation would be to glorify God. Because in Leviticus 8 through 10, we found three requirements of the priesthood. The priests had to be remade before they could serve. They had to make atonement for themselves before they could serve. And they had to do exactly what the Lord commanded as they served. (coughs) And this morning, I've got three pastoral charges for you. Three ways that we can take the truths of Leviticus 8 through 10 and apply them to our lives. First pastoral charge, trust in Jesus as your perfect high priest. Trust in Jesus as your perfect high priest. I know this was a heavy sermon from a heavy passage, but still, even in this passage about holiness and God's wrath, we still get a clear picture of Jesus. You cannot save yourself because you are a sinner just like the rest of us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you failed to live. And as the true and greater high priest, Christ offered himself on the cross. And then he rose from the grave and he forever lives as our great high priest. Today, we need no priest, no sacrifice, no temple besides what Christ has already done. And if you only humble yourself, confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone, then all your sins will be washed away and you have no reason to fear the wrath of God. Second pastoral charge, do everything exactly as the Lord commands. 
especially when it comes to worship. Do everything as the Lord commands, especially when it comes to worship. That means that when we gather to worship the Lord, we're not reinventing the wheel. So here at Horkin Baptist Church, we have a very simple worship service because we simply do as the Lord commanded us, nothing more, nothing less. That, that when we come together, we do exactly what the Bible tells us to do, to pray together, to sing together, to preach the word, communion, baptism, the whole nine yards. But we are never going to have a section of our service where we do interpretive dance to worship the Lord. That's just not what we're going to do. And, and let me say this too. Every single time that we come to worship, we should constantly be asking, what has God commanded of us? And I could preach a whole sermon on that question. And in fact... If you come back next week, we're going to be taking a one-week break from Leviticus just to answer that question. How should worship be ordered in the church? So we'll be meditating on that question this week. But for now, do everything as the Lord commands us, especially when it comes to worship. Because we don't get to set the terms He does. Final pastoral charge. And this is a long one, so just to, to preface it. Make glorifying God your number one priority. Make glorifying God your number one priority. You and I were created by God to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist as a church, to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Our goal as a church is not to increase our weekly attendance and to increase our budget. Our goal for a church is to be sanctified and before all the people for Jesus to be glorified. Now I'll tell you, more people and more money are blessings, but if and only if we're more concerned with God's glory than anything else. Amen? Amen. When I first moved here, I, I met another pastor named Aaron Spoonhauer. Many of you know Aaron because about 10 years ago, he was an intern here at HBC, and then he became a member here. And when the opportunity opened for Aaron to pastor at First Baptist Warrensburg, he went. So by the time I got here, Aaron had already been pastoring in Warrensburg for over five years. So I asked him if he would meet with me regularly and disciple me. So every now and then we'd sit down and we'd grab coffee and we'd talk about the Bible, theology, our churches, anything really. And I'd ask him for advice and counsel. And it was a great time. Well, after seven years at First Baptist Warrensburg, Aaron accepted a job at another church in Pennsylvania. But before he left, we got to meet one last time. And, and there was one question I was dying to ask him. When Aaron had first arrived at the church, the church was comprised of roughly 12, 60 to 80-year-olds. Aaron had no kids himself, no wife. He was a, a single guy. He was literally the only young person in the church. But by the time he left, the church had completely turned around, had a bunch of kids and families. Uh, so what I was dying to know is how he did it. How on earth did he do it? So I sat down with Aaron, and I was, I was looking for that silver bullet. I asked him how he turned the church around, and he told me, I have no idea. <laughs> we really didn't do anything special. I just preached the word and loved God's people, even if it meant preaching the last sermon of the last funeral and seeing that person ushered into glory and then closing these local church doors. This church didn't die. They all went to live with Jesus. And when he said that, I just got punched in the gut. Because I realized that I was desperate for that silver bullet. I was desperate to grow the church numerically. 
But biblically, there is no silver bullet. Biblically, all we are called to do is to preach the gospel, to plant seeds of the gospel and to to water those gospel seeds and to be faithful with that ministry. But only God can bring the growth. Biblically, we're called to do everything to the glory of God. And whatever our God decides, ordains with this church, it is right. If we see revival in Brant Lake and we have to start new churches because this church is overflowing, glory to God. If we're faithful to the end and this church closes, glory to God. Because even if a local church closes, the universal church, Jesus' church, never ends. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter what our God ordains, among those who are near him, he will be sanctified. And before all the people, he will be glorified. And on that note, all the people said, Amen. Amen. And on that note, let's pray. Dear God of all glory, may we be a people whose number one priority is to glorify you. You are the only one worthy of all glory, honor, and majesty. So may sinners give you glory as we believe in your son. And may your saints give you glory as we seek to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.